Today we continue in our series on James, seeing how the gospel is actually expressed through this book that oftentimes seems like a book full of works and full of laws. But today we are looking at the most controversial and difficult passage in all of James. So gear up. Um, My hope is that this will challenge our faith, it will challenge our understanding of Christianity as we tend to understand it. But my greater hope is that this passage is challenging us to be more intentional and deliberate with how we love Jesus Christ. Now we have a tendency in Reformed churches and in churches that preach the gospel to stress the gospel a lot because we love the gospel. We love the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We love the fact that it was not our works. It's not because we are good people that were accepted by God. It's because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So every single week we talk about the cross. We talk about what Jesus has done, his death and resurrection. And that's right and that is good. But we tend to stress certain, certain relationships. We tend to stress our role as kind of unworthy sinners and God's role as this gracious, loving Savior. Now the problem is that that can give us kind of blind spots to see other things in God's word. And give us blind spots to see that that gospel that we love so much, there is a works element to it. There are works as part of a response to the gospel. And we also see that Jesus Christ, he, he was himself obedient. That obedience is, is a core kind of delight of the Lord God. And we also see that we are called to be holy as Jesus Christ was holy. And so we need to stress kind of all of God's word. And so today we're going to look at the relationship between faith and works. Seeing what kind of is essential about these works, why we pursue them. So we're going to see fundamentally two things in James today. We're going to see that that faith without works is dead and that cannot save us. But that faith with works is actually true, legitimate faith in Jesus Christ himself. And then we're going to draw out some of the implications of that, especially implications for how we are to pursue good works, how we pursue obedience in a way that is faithful to what Christ has done, but is still true obedience. All right. So we have, we have our work cut out for us. Let's jump into James 2 and look at verses 14 through 26. Here is James 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Do you see that the person is justified by works and not by faith alone? In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear your scripture today. We ask that we would see the gospel for what it is. We would see and the love Christ, but that that love would not be um, divided from works and from obedience. Father, would you give us a holistic love for Christ? One that is uh, tangible and expresses itself in good works. We pray this in, Father's, in our Father's name through Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, all right. So, first of all, faith without works is dead. And we're see this in, in three elements. That faith without works is dead because it's kind of mere lip service to God. It is kind of perpetuating a false dichotomy, a false contrast. And finally, it's just mere intellectualism. All right, so there's some heavy concepts, but let's start with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now get this straight. James understands that you are saved by faith. He's not saying there's another way of salvation, but he's asking this difficult question. What is the nature of real faith? What does that faith look like? And can you just have faith in Jesus Christ without any good works? Is that a real possibility? Well, let's see what he compares that to. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? What James is essentially saying is, if you give someone a blessing, but offer them no way to actually back up that blessing, it's lip service. If you actually want to see someone who is cold and hungry, warm and filled, you wouldn't just say, go, go be warm and filled. You would give them a coat and you'd give them a meal. That would actually kind of back up the blessing that you're giving. It would show that you actually mean it and it would make the blessing true. Now, what if you only give the blessing? If you only give the blessing without giving them the food, without giving them the coat, it actually shows your real intentions behind the blessing. It shows that your blessing was merely just spoken words. It was cheap. It was easy. And it had nothing behind it. This is the same thing. Like, let's say your boss says, you know, you just, you've been working so hard. You really need to rest. You should have just go home, get some good rest, and then gives you five hours more work. Right? Like, oh, do, do you really want me to get rest? No. He wants you to do your work. He knows that he's probably pushing you too hard. And he or she, I realize. Um, uh, they're pushing you hard and feels bad about it. But are they really going to do anything to change it? No. It's, kind of, it's a false blessing. All right. We have sayings for that kind of stuff. We don't like this. 
We say that, that talk is cheap. It's easier said than done. That actions speak louder than words. All these are stressing the fact that if you say something and do another, it's usually the thing that you do that has more weight. And the thing is that that is true of faith as well. Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. And it's, it's false because it's just lip service. That if you have two things, this is what I say I believe, and this is what I do, what you do has more weight. It's showing what you actually believe. What you profess, what you're saying with your lips, is actually completely contrary to what you're doing with your life. So we have to ask ourselves the, the extremely hard question. Are we offering lip service to God? Do we say that we love Jesus, but then never actually do anything to try to please him? Or do we say that we really enjoy Jesus, but never spend time with him? Do we say that we see Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we don't actually seek to obey our Lord? In all of these things, actions speak louder than words. Actually, works speak louder than just words of faith. That is what James is speaking to us. But I think, uh, draw out some more implications of that. I think inherent is in this relationship is the fact that your actions reveal your faith. And so if you're sinning, you can actually look behind the sin and see the ways that you are struggling in faith. You can see kind of your faith blind spots, as it were. And so think of a, think of a sin. Think of a sin that you struggle with. See how long this takes all of you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Shouldn't take too long. All right, you have your sin. Do you all have your sin? Mm -hmm. Yes, all right. What are you failing to believe when you're sinning in that way? What are you failing to believe? Now, that is a really hard question. And you probably can't answer it right away. If you can, it's probably like, well, but I don't know what to do with that. Which makes sense. Because sin is, is an area of our lives where we don't actually see Christ. We don't see how the gospel is relevant. We don't see where God connects. And that's part of the heart behind sin. Is that we go to sin because we don't understand who God is. We don't have faith. Now, I would ask us that when we sin, that we do that hard work of looking behind the sin to see the ways that we are lacking in faith. To see what we are struggling to believe. And that's hard, so we do it in community. That's why we, we confess to one another. We look behind our sins and say, uh, I'm seeing it this way. What are, what are the things I'm blind to? You're probably not going to come up with that on your own. That is why we come to each other and work these things out. That's why we need kind of daily encouragement to keep remembering the truth so we can battle sin, we don't fall to temptation. But this is a really good and hard work that is the work of faith, to look behind our sin to faith. Now, and when we're in groups, unfortunately, that tends not to happen because there tends to be a person in the group 
who, who gets uncomfortable. They don't like this sin struggle thing. There's a sensitive person who's kind of like just really tender hearted and doesn't want anyone to feel bad. And they tend to cut off the discussion. Well, oh, you see sin. No, just Jesus Christ has paid for that. Don't worry about it. And, and you, you wash over that stuff. Now, if you are that person, I'm going to challenge you. You need to be more patient. And you need to settle down. If we sit with our sin, we will not be crushed by it. The hope is that we will actually grow. That we can look behind it, search out our hearts, search out faith, and come to understand Christ better. If you are that person, you might actually be squelching the Spirit's work of, of convicting hearts. So let's be patient. We will get to the gospel. But we want to see how we're missing the gospel in our sin. All right, now this is happening in, in James's context as well. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now that, that, that verse isn't translated that well. Uh, a better translation, I think, is someone will say that, that you all have faith and that I, James, have works. Basically, there's this false person, this false peacemaker who's saying, well, no, no, I can work it out for you guys. We don't need to be fighting about this. How about the Jewish Christians? They're just really good at faith. And James, you're really good at works. There's just two kinds of people. There's works people and faith people. Can't we all just get along? That's kind of sunny. That's a nice thought. Like, oh, yeah, like we're just good at different things. Let's just uh, focus on what we're good at, not what we're bad at. All right, the problem is that that creates a false dichotomy. And that's a fun, a fun little phrase. It's basically pitting two things against each other that shouldn't be pitted against each other. We already talked about one in James already. We talked about the false dichotomy of the spirit and the word. That we say that, oh no, there's, there's spirit people and word people. And some people like to listen to the spirit. Some people like to listen to the word. No, if you're a Christian, you listen to both. You love hearing both. You obey both. That the Holy Spirit and the Word are not contradictory. One isn't the intellectual, one's not the emotional one. No, they come together and are one whole and help us understand. Right. In the same way, there are not faith people and works people. If you want to divide people, there, there are two kinds of people. There are people with both faith and works or neither faith or works. Those are our two options. That faith and works always come together. Always. Right? Ketchup and mustard, salt and pepper, faith and works. And it should always happen like that. Anytime we're talking about faith, it should have works. Anytime we're talking about works, there should be faith behind it. We never want to separate those things. Look at what James says in verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you faith by my works. What is he saying? He's saying that faith and works aren't opposed to one another. That works are actually proof of faith. They express faith. They're evidence of faith. All right, so what are the implications for that? How do we probably get that wrong? In our Reformed context, we tend to downplay obedience and tend to upplay faith. So much so that if someone is, is like a good person who seems to be trying to obey the law, we tend to look down on them. 
we tend to accuse them of being kind of goody two-shoes or being too into being good. Maybe we'd accuse them of not understanding grace. We'd accuse them of being a legalist, of trying to earn their salvation. We might say that the pursuit of holiness is kind of contrary to the understanding of the cross that we have. No, no, you don't need to pursue holiness. Just, just get your holiness from Jesus. You should be fine. What James is saying that in reality, a true faith is going to naturally express itself through obedience. That the two things necessarily go together. And when we divide them, we create a, a relationship between works and grace that is false. All right. Uh, related to that. All right, there's a weird irony in the Christian life between people who are trying to live by works and people who are trying to live by grace. There are grace people and there are works people. That's where you're trying to find your salvation. And ironically, grace people, people who understand that they are saved by Jesus alone, those people love Jesus and they love obedience. And so they naturally are kind of good people, as it were. They like obeying Jesus because they, they love Jesus. But the irony is that they look like they're obsessed with the law. And they look like they just are constantly trying to be obedient. And so there's like this ironic thing that people who understand grace are often accused of being legalistic. And it goes the other way as well. That people who are living by works, they don't understand how they're loved by Jesus in reality. They don't understand that, no, I'm already accepted. And so, they actually struggle with obedience. They struggle with works. And so it looks like they're just uh, really loose about the law. They don't really care about it. Or they're like, oh, they take it or leave it. And we say, oh, well, they're just really free. They're not under judgment anymore. In reality, no, they're, they're just still enslaved to sin. They haven't found the, their love for Jesus expressed in obedience. So even though they look like they're living under grace, they're actually still under the law. There is that irony, and we need to be kind of cognizant of that. And never look down on obedience or obedient people. All right, caveat, caveat. We're going to have a couple caveats. If you're trying to be accepted by God through works, if you think that that is how God is going to love you, then you are deceived then you are a Pharisee, you are a legalist, and you are lying to yourself and to the world. We absolutely do not think that you are saved by what you do. We do not think that you have to be accepted by doing a bunch of work. Now, that's not at all what we mean. But what I do mean is that just because we don't think you are saved by works doesn't mean that we hate good works or that we kind of just totally throw out all obedience. It's a complex relationship. Jesus loves obedience. We love obedience because in Jesus, we, we are happy in Jesus as we trust and obey. We really do believe that. That's not a legalistic song. It's an expression of the fact that we love Jesus and love obeying him. All right, so faith without works creates this false dichotomy. It tries to separate faith and works in a way that is not only unhealthy, but just untrue. All right, finally, faith without works is mere 
intellectualism. Verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. All right, so we haven't actually defined faith yet. And I think that's, how that's because faith is actually kind of hard to define. And it has, has three elements. Three elements. The first element of faith is just knowing what is true. Right? When we're trying to believe, you can't just believe in anything willy-nilly. You can't believe in the spaghetti monster and then hope that you're going to be saved from your sins. No, you have to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You have to believe that in his resurrection, you have found life in him, that you are per perfectly accepted by God. Now, that's just the facts of Christianity. But you have to know the facts. That's part of faith. All right, good. Second, you have to believe those facts to be true. You assent to those things and say, yeah, no, I believe that. All right, I, had, I knew lots of people in college, intelligent people who understood what the Christian message was. My roommate, he could tell you, okay, I know what Christians believe. They believe that Christ died for your sins and now you're going to heaven, you're okay. He understood what we were trying to say, but he also thought it was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. And he thought it was a lie. That's where the second element of faith comes in. You have to actually believe that this thing is true. That it's not a lie, it's not false, it's not trying to deceive you. That what is true is, is the gospel. All right, but there's a third element. And the third element is probably the hardest. You have to actually do something with that belief. You can't just say, okay, yeah, I, I intellectually assent to the fact that that is true. James points to the demons. The demons, do they know the truth? Yeah. They know who God is. They know the gospel. They know what Jesus did on the cross. They know that Jesus Christ is all about loving people and accepting them by grace. And they also believe it's true. They know that God has been victorious on the cross. They shudder at the thought of it. They know it's true. But the third element is, what do they do with that? What do the demons do with their knowledge and their belief? They hate God. They hate Jesus and they hate the Holy Spirit. They hate everything that this Holy Spirit and everything that Jesus is trying to do. They blaspheme this God that they know so much about. And that is the critical difference between real faith and false faith. It's what you do with it. Maybe you know a lot about Jesus, but you don't actually trust him with your salvation. You don't love him. You don't enjoy him. You don't go to him. That's going to be the big difference between real faith and false faith. And that, that is super challenging. But that oftentimes we are just intellectuals. Which isn't bad. The intellect is part of faith. But it's more than that. And that's where James takes us next. He takes us to the fact that, that the third element of faith is trust in God. And he's going to show that through two Old Testament cases. Let's look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. All right, we remember the story of Genesis. We remember Abraham. Abraham was chosen and given this promise. This promise that he would have a son in his and his wife's old age. And that that son would be uh, kind of multiplied until he would have as many offspring as the stars in the sky. He was told that. And it said that Abraham believed that and was counted to him as righteousness. But James is saying, how do we know that he believed? How did that belief express itself? Well, when he was told to go sacrifice his son, Isaac, on the altar, he got up, got his knife, he chopped up some wood, and he hiked down to Mount Moriah with his son in tow. And we can imagine what was going through his mind as he was walking up Mount Moriah to kill his son. What was going through his head? God, why would you ask me to do this? Maybe you aren't the good God that I always thought you were. All these other gods, they're bloodthirsty and cruel. Maybe you're finally revealing your true colors. Maybe you are as cruel as all the other gods. Maybe you are not good. Maybe I can't really trust you. And how, how on earth am I supposed to get this promise fulfilled if my one offspring is going to be killed? How am I going to get numerous offspring as many as the stars in the sky? Now, there are plenty of doubts there he could have had. But did he act according to his doubts or did he act according to faith? In his faith, he trusted that God keeps his promises, that he is good, that he is gracious. And so he, he went to Mount Moriah and with his, his knife in hand, he was trusting that God was actually who he said he is. With that knife in hand, he was showing that this faith was going to work. He was going to obey God to the very end. Maybe God would, would stop his hand, as he eventually did. Maybe he would rescue, he would actually resurrect his son from the dead. Maybe he'd give him another son. But he trusted God and he acted accordingly. And when the angel stopped his hand, he was able to see that no, God really is the God he says he is. That he keeps his promises, he is gracious, he is good, he is loving. And the hardest thing is that Abraham wouldn't have known that if he had refused to go there. He wouldn't have seen. He would have had to just believe, no, I guess, guess my doubt is what I have to believe. But by acting in faith, he actually was able to see that these promises are real. All right, second story, verse 25. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. All right, this is the story of Rahab, the foreign woman from Joshua 2. Now, she was living in Jericho, and Israel was marching towards Jericho. And all of Jericho was hearing the stories of the Exodus. They're hearing about the, the Red Sea being parted the plagues being thrown down against Egypt. 
And they were terrified. This whole city was in terror, knowing that this God and his people were to come and destroy them. They all believed in God. They knew the truth of what he did. And they believed it was true. But one woman, Rahab, actually acted upon that truth and decided not just to fear, but to move towards God. To trust him. And she trusted God by expressing that in faith. Expressing that through works and saving the spies. And so when Jericho finally collapsed, the only people who survived were Rahab and her family. Because she had acted out of faith in works. Alright, that is how it's supposed to look. These are, these are crushing examples because we have much more to go on and much less to, to lose in our acting by faith. But that is real faith. That is faith acting through works. Alright. Now, now we need to talk some theology. Alright, who is troubled by these passages? It says some, some brutal things here. Alright. Was not Abraham justified by works? You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works? Now, this leaves us with the question, are we justified by faith or by works? How can Paul say, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law? As it's just one of those blatant contradictions in Scripture, one of those troubling things that some people say we're saved by works and some people say we're saved by grace. I think we can, we can do better than that. I would say that Paul and James have different definitions of faith and works. All right, Paul. Paul, when he is talking about faith, he's talking about real faith. Real faith that you are justified by Christ alone. James. It's talking about false faith, primarily. A faith that would just give mere lip service to Jesus when you don't really trust him. All right. So different kinds of faith. It's also different kinds of works. In Paul, Paul is talking about works before salvation. Works trying to earn salvation in Jesus Christ. James is talking about works after finding salvation and responding to the salvation we already have. So when we think about works, it's a timing issue, in a sense. If you're trying to do works to be accepted, to be loved before Christ, that's completely useless. It's a total waste of time. You're deceiving yourself. That you're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Those works aren't going to help you at all. But after salvation, you have to have works. Because works prove the fact that this is real faith. Otherwise, you could be deceiving yourself, thinking that you're trusting in Jesus when you don't. All right. Caveat number two. Caveat number two. No one's saying that we're not pursuing perfection. We're pursuing the process of sanctification. It's a step-by-step -step process that we're getting kind of moving away from sin and moving towards obedience slowly and over time. So if you're saying, oh, I still sin sometimes, that doesn't mean that you're 
you're fallen, that doesn't mean you have false faith. If you're growing in obedience, that is proof of your faith. All right, but this is the non-caveat. If you have no good works, or if you have unrepentant, habitual sin in your life, that is evidence that you don't really have true faith. That you should be scared about your salvation because your actions don't show that you have a real saving faith in Jesus Christ. There's, there's no way to get around that in the text. All right. All right, so let's get practical. Let's get practical. What do you do if you see that you are struggling with sin and you're struggling to be obedient? How are you supposed to go about this process? How do we fight sin? How do we pursue obedience? All right, if you're taking one thing away, I want you to, don't want to stress this. Don't try harder with the works. Try harder with the faith. Don't try harder with the works. Try harder with the faith. What does it look like to try harder with the works? Basically just, you would focus on the actions themselves. We tend to think that this is just really practical. So like, oh, I'm, I'm being really terrible at doing quiet time. So, you know, I'm just going to make like a little checklist with little boxes that I'm going to check off each day. Every day I do my quiet time. Okay, that, that's, that's okay. Or, oh, I'm really struggling to eating my emotions. So I'm going I'm to start counting calories. All right. Uh, you're struggling with pornography. You know, I just need to get a really good internet filter. All right, all of those things, those aren't bad things. Those aren't sinful things. But know that they're not getting to the heart of the issue. That if you're struggling with obedience and with sin, that's a faith issue. All of those things are problems with understanding that God is really good. That it'll be worth it if you try to enjoy him. That if you pursue him, you will be satisfied. These are faith problems. And so we address sin problems with faith. We address it with, with all three aspects of faith. First of all, the truth. Sometimes with sin, you just, especially new believers, they just don't even know what things are sin and what aren't. They need to be shown the truth, the things that are sinful. And so there's a natural response like, oh, I love Jesus. It's like, he doesn't want me to do that? Okay. That's when it's easiest. That's what you hope for. Um, but maybe you just need to learn why you're being asked not to do certain things and to do others. There's just underlying things that you don't understand. And pursuing the truth is going to help you with obedience. All right, second aspect of faith. We have to be really honest with what we actually believe. I know that we all have things that we, we say we believe or we want to believe, we know we're supposed to believe, but in our heart of hearts we have kind of doubts, we have lingering questions, and we don't actually believe the things that we say we believe. Now how do you address those kind of problems? I think first you have to admit it. You confess it to the Lord. The passage, Lord help my unbelief. Uh, you know, that's, that's such a, a crazy response, but it's, it's recognizing, no, I should believe this. This is where the body comes in with long, long conversations about what you actually believe. Journaling to God, praying to him, confessing to him. 
We need a battle to believe the truth. And then finally, we need to trust God. The third aspect of faith. We need to act on what is true. We need to respond to God in a way that, that receives him as he says he is. Now that, that's the hard one. All right, so let's, let's do this with, with uh, a simple example. I know this, this can feel kind of intellectual, so uh, you'll probably need help doing this. Um, but let's take an example. Patience. You're struggling with patience. There's something that you want, and you're not getting it, so you're getting bitter, you're getting frustrated, you're not responding well. All right, so don't just like, oh, I need to muster up a bunch of, faith, uh, a bunch of patience. No, okay, let, let's do the faith, the faith thing. Wait, let's start with the truth. What truths are going to make you patient? Let me start with the, with the God ones. Uh, God is really patient with us. That he could have wiped us out in our first sin, but instead he, he like lets us go through this arduous process of slowly being sanctified. He is patient and doesn't get angry with us. That could help. All right, maybe, maybe you want to trust for patience the fact that God is a sovereign, that he is in control, that and nothing happens out of his timing, and he loves you. And if he does love you, then he's probably giving you what you need at the moment. You can be patient. Cool? All right, that's the truth. Pursue the truth. Now you need to believe it. Do you actually believe you are a son of God, loved, loved by him? Do you really believe that he is in control? Or do you actually believe that this world is just one big swirling chaos and that God maybe doesn't even care about you? Maybe in your heart of hearts you think that God hates you or doesn't care. He kind of enjoys making you miserable. If that's the case, then of course you're going to be impatient. We need to fight to believe what is true. All right. Finally, you're going to act on these, these truths. If, you, if God says that he is patient, that he loves you, that he cares, then we're going to pray to that kind of God. We're going to love that kind of God. We're going to do things that respond accordingly. All right. If we're doing that, patience should come somewhat naturally. Because it would just be kind of stupid not to be patient. It'd go against all of reality, and it'd be contrary to, to everything that God says, everything that you believe. Right? That is how we pursue obedience. By faith expressing itself through works, we are to work on our faith. Now, what is the primary object of our faith? Jesus Christ. We can't say anything without Jesus Christ. We can never say that God loves us. We can't say that God is for us. We can't say that he is patient with us. No, all of these promises are true of us in Jesus Christ. If we are struggling with sin, we need to look to Jesus and have faith in Jesus Christ that Jesus has done everything that is necessary for our salvation, to find acceptance by God, to be loved and to be cared for to be adored in him. Jesus already proved that he has faith. He had real faith, faith that led him to the work of dying on the cross for us.
He has proved that he loves us. He has proved that he cares for us. And so he is our love. And if he is our love, he ought also to be our Lord. The one that we obey, the one that we, we cherish obeying because he has what is best for us in mind. Let us obey that we might be reassured of our faith and so that we might actually enjoy Christ more and more.